Um, uh, hello, everybody. I'm uh, Vidya Srinivasan. I'm the general manager for uh, Amazon Redshift, and I've pretty much been with the service since its launch. In fact, reInvent is super special for us because uh, four years ago, 2012, is when we launched um, Redshift at the very first reInvent. Uh, so now we are at year four, and it's just been a fantastic year for the service. Uh, we are seeing, we still continue to be one of the fastest growing services uh, in AWS. And more importantly, we're also seeing customers continue to use the platform in uh, really innovative ways. They're really trying to figure out how to drive uh, analytics to uh, drive their business. And essentially what that means for us is we get to get these really crazy requirements and work on very interesting things. Uh, so it's been a fun year. Uh, so today I'm just going to talk about uh, two, ma two major things. I just want to go over the use cases that we see that are very popular with Redshift. And the second thing is I want to do um, an overview of some of the new features that we've uh, put out this year. I don't think we'll have time for all the features, but at least the ones that I think are very popular with customers. Okay. <clears throat> so before I actually go into Redshift, I'm going to take a moment to give you a brief overview of the big data portfolio. I apologize if you've seen this chart in other presentations. We tried to first position services. Uh, so if you think of any big data application, it typically has three phases. There's going to be an acquisition phase, which is collection of the data, uh, followed by uh, storing and then finally analyzing, uh, analyzing this data. So for the collection portion, we have an array of services. These are just the ones that we see most commonly used with our, uh, with our customers. Uh, so if you're interested in the most low latency, high bandwidth connection, basically connecting your data center to ours, uh, Direct Connect is the best option. Uh, Snowball essentially allows you to FedEx a whole bunch of data, tens of terabytes of data to us. And then we have Amazon Kinesis, which is a set of solutions that, are, uh, that allow you to just stream data uh, into AWS. So these are uh, very popular with IoT devices. And Kinesis has also announced uh, facilities where you can do real-time SQL analytics as well as Firehose, which is essentially managed uh, Kinesis that is optimized for getting um, data into S3 and Redshift. Again, I see that quite a bit with uh, Redshift customers. Uh, the second pillar here is about storage. Um, as you're probably aware, S3 is our foundational uh, storage service. It's scalable, cost-effective, and at uh, 23 cents per gigabyte per month. Um, you know, it's, it's a pretty good place to get your data, and especially given durability with the nine nines of durability. Uh, we also have Glacier, which is a sister service to S3 that's really more for archival. So think of Glacier as your tape drive uh, equivalent. And then we have a couple of managed services for search, uh, DynamoDB, which is a, a NoSQL data store. It's really used with both key value pairs as well as uh, JSON data uh, for high throughput applications. Um, and then finally, we have the Analyze um, pillar. And we have services such as Amazon EMR, which is uh, managed Hadoop, Spark, and open source uh, big data distributions. Uh, EC2, which is our foundational compute service, and we see customers build a lot of analytics apps right on top of EC2. Uh, we have Amazon Machine Learning, which is managed machine learning that is targeted both for uh, data scientists who want to build machine learning models as well as consumers of this model. 
uh, followed by QuickSight, which is our BI visualization service. And then we have Redshift right there, which is our petabyte scale data warehousing service. Now, to sort of tying this stuff together below, we have uh, data pipeline and data migration service. These are essentially allow you to bring data in. All right, uh, so let me just quickly take a step back. As you can see, we have made a lot of investment in this area of big data and analytics. And um, and really, why, why is that? Why have we gone all the way, and why did we have services like Redshift? I mean, the key underlying reason is what we notice is there is a huge and widening gap between the data that's getting generated and the data that is getting analyzed in systems like uh, Redshift or any data warehouse for that matter. And when we took a look at it and said, okay, what's the reason for this? Obviously, people are generating this data. They have chosen to store this data. Why would they not want to do something with it? <clears throat> what we found is the legacy systems that were available did not allow for that to happen, either because they were too expensive, they were just too hard to manage and complicated. And as data scale to petabytes or more, uh, these systems just did not work. And so it was just not feasible to do this in spite of having all of this data. Uh, this was really the motivation for creating uh, Redshift. In fact, the goal for Redshift is to come up with a fast, uh, simple, and cost-effective solution, which is a petabyte-scale uh, data warehousing solution. And our offering basically allows you to store a terabyte of data for under $1,000 a year. So pretty compelling. Um, so we've now had four years with Redshift in the market. It's not new anymore. So we have a lot of examples of actually customers' uh, usage and what they think about the service. So in this case, for example, we have uh, Boingo Wireless, which has over 100 million hotspots worldwide. And they've moved their data warehouse from Oracle Exadata, and they saw up to 180x improvements in performance. When it comes to ease of use, uh, the most common pattern I see with customers is uh, when they move to a platform like Redshift, they are now able to <clears throat> really unleash their data. Essentially, just open it up to the organization and let people literally just have at it. Uh, Vivo, for example, which is an online music uh, streaming platform. In fact, uh, they're quite popular on YouTube if, if you're into music videos. Uh, they apparently drive 20% of YouTube traffic. Uh, they do their analytics on Redshift. And moving there really allowed them to create custom dashboards for all their employees. Pretty powerful stuff. The third thing is that on cost, I mean, number of customers, couple of quotes here, Financial Times, Hotlook, which is an online uh, part of uh, Nordstrom. Uh, people have seen pretty huge gains in terms of uh, finding a solution that is far more cost effective. So at a high level, who are, the, who are the guys who actually use Redshift? Well, it's kind of all over the map. I mean, we have people who are in the small or to hundreds of, um, uh, you know, small terabytes to hundreds of terabytes, all the way to uh, customers like uh, NTT Docomo, who are uh, currently pushing 10 petabytes, uh, so pretty large. We also have customers all across different verticals. We have folks in mobile, healthcare, financial services, etc. <clears throat> One of my largest customers would be uh, Amazon itself, the retail and digital wing of Amazon. <clears throat> and they actually store all their clickstream data in Redshift. So if you're shopping in Amazon.com, 
everything that you click makes its way hourly into Redshift. And they look at this data for figuring out uh, user behavior, by figuring out engagement, stuff like that. <clears throat> a more recent addition to, um, to this has been, within Amazon has been Alexa. So the Alexa team now takes all the interactions that people have with Alexa, and they get moved into Redshift every day hourly. And one of the fun facts that the team shared with me was um, uh, they've been analyzing this. I mean, this is uh, hundreds of thousands of transactions or millions of transactions um, a day, right? Rows a day that gets that gets in. And what they found is, on an average, almost every day, about 5,000 people profess their love for Alexa. So, yeah, pretty uh, pretty lonely place to be. Um, so that's just the cross-section of customers. Uh, let me then talk about sort of the data use case segments, the high-level segments, and there are really three of them. Uh, the first segment is around traditional data warehousing. So these are workloads where people are moving from uh, traditional on-prem systems. And there are a couple of characteristics that's important that I think Retrof uh, fulfills uh, for these workloads. It's around ease of migration, security, and ecosystem. Um, these are important things. So with migration, we actually now have uh, another comprehensive offering around data migration service and schema conversion to ease with that. In addition to that, we also have uh, built out our own professional services team that helps customers uh, move, move over. Um, on security and compliance, well, We'll talk about this in more detail, but we've, we've always viewed security as a first-class citizen, and that's something we built in right from day one. Um, and um, we were lucky that Redshift is Postgres compliant, as well as it has standard JDBC or DBC drivers. And with that, we're able to really work closely with, just work almost seamlessly with a whole host of BI and ETL tools. Uh, we also spend a lot of time with our Partners. I mean, if you ever visit the Redshift partner page, we have a large number of them uh, whom we work with closely to ensure that as we change and they evolve, uh, things still work for our customers. The next segment is around log analytics. And, and here I really classify this as the use case where the data is actually machine generated. So it could be web logs, um, things that are coming in from IoT devices, but essentially it's a large volume of data that at pretty high velocity as well. And the requirements here are around being uh, cost-effective, uh, fast, and sort of near real-time because decisions get made um, pretty quickly in terms of what the data is pointing to. Um, so in this case, I think around, uh, we talked about the price point. Around fast, I mean, if you think about the architecture for Retro, we are um, MPP, columnar, it has compression enabled, we use zone maps. I mean, all of these different things essentially allow us to process queries very efficiently. Uh, that leads to uh, pretty good speed ups, even with, uh, you know, 10-way joints. So it, it fits pretty well. Uh, Lyft is a, is a big use case here. They use Retro for all their rider information. And essentially, they were able to analyze their data in Redshift to figure out that uh, during rush hour, 90% of rides actually share the common routes. And one of the outcomes of this, uh, of this was uh, coming up with the lift line, which is their uh, pooling service. So again, it really leads to 
you know, how the businesses view what they're doing and what they want to do moving forward. Uh, the third category, and the last one, is around business applications. So think of this as SaaS. So this is the use case where customers use Redshift under the covers to drive uh, their analytics platform and, and what they offer their customers uh, as an analytics platform. Uh, in a number of cases, the end users might not even know that it's Redshift below that. And the key things here, the characteristics here around being fully managed, and this is super important because uh, these customers actually run fleets of Redshift servers, not just a single cluster. Uh, they want um, a chargeback model that's easy to follow. And in this case, what I've seen is several customers, because it's so easy to spin up clusters, it's easy, and each cluster has it's a single tenant cluster if they choose to do so. They can just charge back based on direct Redshift usage. And the third thing is around just being uh, able to plug in to other things that they're doing because it's, a, it's an end-to-end -end platform. Redshift is one node in their entire pipeline, and it needs to work with uh, the step before and the step after. So just having the ability to work with the other tools, both within the AWS ecosystem as well as outside, is important. An example here is how Accenture built its analytics platform uh, with Redshift as one of the underpinnings. So that's about the workloads, right? That's about the types of workloads. The other big trend that I see here is uh, customers are increasingly using us for mission-critical applications. So these are applications that are time-sensitive. It requires that the database stay up, it stays with consistent performance, and be relied upon for making day-to-day -day business decisions and driving business. And we're seeing a lot of this. Uh, here are some examples of this. Um, one of them I'd call out is NASDAQ, something all of us are familiar with. It's the, um, it's the exchange, and basically they process all their transactions and do daily reporting using Redshift clusters, and supercritical uh, to get these out to their analysts in time. Um, so uh, as far as uh, availability of Redshift goes, I mean, as you, as you probably noticed, uh, we are growing pretty aggressively in terms of region expansion. Redshift is viewed as a core service for AWS, and uh, we intend to be in every region that AWS goes to, and currently is, and, and that's what you're seeing here. We have, uh, I think, 14 regions and counting, so quite a few. All right, so now we get to the interesting bits. Um, so let's sort of talk about uh, some of the new features that we worked on. Some of the earlier description is really to give you a sense for why we are building what we are building. I mean, all of this is really driven by customer requirements and what we hear. And so the fact that we are having mission-critical applications guides us towards making sure we are better on availability uh, and things like that. All right, so the first big uh, investment we made this year was around improving Redshift performance. <clears throat> and let me just define what, perform how, what we mean by performance because it's kind of an umbrella term. Uh, we basically said, who are, the are there customers out there who are having uh, pain points and how, we, how can we help them uh, move the needle on that? So we view performance on two axes. On one hand, that is the overall throughput of the system, which is you know, how many queries can you process in a given Redshift cluster in unit time? So queries per hour for a given cluster. I think the second aspect of performance that's super meaningful 
is, <coughs> are you able to have an interactive experience with your Redshift uh, database? <laughs> and this is important because when we actually sit down with customers and talk about um, you know, what they need, if they're having pain points in this area, it really comes down to, hey, I want to make sure I can process all my work. And then there are a set of queries where there's somebody waiting on the other end for this thing to process. And I just need them to be able to get their job done. So it really boiled down to interactivity and throughput. Uh, the other aspect that we realized was <clears throat> customers are running Redshift in increasingly open environments. So these are environments where essentially there is no gatekeeper to your data warehouse anymore. These are, they pretty much just set it up and say anybody can go submit whatever they want. And the, the service has to kind of self-manage and protect itself. So that was another guiding principle as we tried to um, figure this out, because <clears throat> we wanted to make sure that the cluster can automatically protect itself, because you're going to have users who know how to write SQL and those who don't, and you're going to have uh, misuse of cluster resources as well. Uh, so let me go into some detail with that. But before that, a note on vacuum. So, so we did hear last year that vacuum uh, sometimes becomes a pain point for certain large tables, and so we've uh, put quite a bit of effort on that uh, over this year. Uh, we've, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago, we released a big improvement to vacuum performance for both vacuum full and vacuum delete. We are seeing on an average about 10x improvement with performance. And we are seeing up to 100x in some cases. Uh, so hopefully that should help uh, in those cases. And essentially the underlying change was we went to a very incremental model of vacuuming. And that's what led to the performance gains. Okay, so I'm going to go a little bit deeper on how we got the 5x improvement in performance. Uh, before I do that, let me just explain sort of the flow of uh, the query itself so <clears throat> I'm able to talk about this. So in this diagram, what you see is the leader node. Um, if you're familiar with workload management within Redshift, it basically allows you to set up queues. And for every queue, you can set up a certain number of uh, WLM slots. These are essentially execution slots that convert to resources. In this diagram, there are two queues. Q1 has four slots, and Q2 has two slots. Uh, the black things that you see standing in the queues are the queries. The height of the queries, or the height of these uh, rectangles, show the uh, expected query execution time. So the longer it is, the, the long running the query is. So <clears throat> here you see the uh, query coming in from a BI app getting to the queue. It gets directed to the queue based on settings if there are some, or it goes to a default queue setting that we would ship uh, automatically. And then um, it waits for its turn, gets executed, uh, gets a slot, and then stays on that slot for the duration of query execution. Once it gets there, we actually do the query planning, come up with the code generation, ship codes to all the compute nodes, and the query actually gets generated within the compute nodes, or get, gets executed within the compute nodes. Okay, so the first uh, uh, change, uh, it's, it's not out yet. So there are a bunch of items here that have the tag coming soon. Uh, the expected horizon is about one to two months. Uh, so the first thing here is uh, what we call short query bias. In this case, what we essentially did was, uh, the goal is to basically say, you know, the interactive queries tend to be short in nature, and users don't always know which ones they are, and they can't really queue them appropriately. So we said, okay, we have to figure this out on behalf of the user. 
So irrespective of what queues the queries land on, we will detect the queries that we think are short and automatically bump up their priority to the front of the queue. <coughs> uh, and this, I mean, overall you'll see that this leads to better throughput because the short queries get, get ahead. It, gets, it doesn't get stuck behind the long-running queries and it's able to improve overall throughput of the system as well as the interactivity. Uh, the second thing we did, again, for the same use case, is what we call the power start. Uh, essentially, in this case, every, every query, the, every new query that gets to a compute node uh, gets a bump in resources. We give it some extra resources and say, okay, see if you get done so that you can be out of the queue and out of our slots. Um, and, of course, and even in this case, the short-running queries will actually just finish and leave the queue while uh, the longer guys will get swapped out. <clears throat> and really the trade-off here is, you know, a query that's, that takes 10 seconds or 5 seconds, you don't want it to wait behind one that takes 45 minutes. You'd rather move it up front and have the one that would take 45 minutes take 48 minutes because it's unlikely to actually matter. Uh, the third thing we did was queue hopping. This one's already available. Uh, in this case, essentially, we give you a mechanism to specify a timeout per queue. So you can say, hey, in this queue, I don't want any query to, you know, hang out and execute for more than one second or five seconds. And the next queue could be a minute. And the third queue could be an hour. So essentially, you're guaranteeing that the longest time a short-running query will wait on a particular queue would be the queue depth times the timeout that you're setting. So it gives you a sense for um, getting things done and, and without knowing a priori what that's going to be. Uh, the other big feature that's coming in this area, and I'm actually going to go to the example first before going to the semantics, <clears throat> is uh, query monitoring rules. You can think of this as uh, queue hopping on steroids. And the goal for this feature really is to help you protect your cluster from misuse. And the secondary goal for this feature is to allow you to detect those situations where your schema is misaligned. So either you have data skew or you have um, some kind of IO skew. It will help you recognize these things as well. Uh, so what you're seeing here is the Redshift uh, Management Console. Uh, this is not out yet. You know, this is what you'll see when we actually release the feature. Uh, so here there is, a, there is a queue. And for that queue, we will now allow you to set a bunch of rules. Every rule is really a combination of Boolean expressions. And so the, you know, uh, the poster child example for this would be to say, hey, in this queue, please don't, uh, please identify the queries that uh, spill to disk. So I mean, if it spells a terabyte to disk, I mean, I think I have a problem. Or identify those queries that are just taking a really long time to run. Um, so in those sorts of situations, you just set up these rules, and then you can specify an action. We currently have three possible actions. You can either log that this query happened, and these were the parameters for the query. So you can go back and investigate uh, what your query patterns are and whether it's in line with uh, your schema. Uh, you can hop. You can basically move the query to a different queue, or you can uh, cancel the query itself. So all of these things together help you uh, manage your workload and manage runaway queries um, uh, pretty, pretty tightly. And, and in this particular one also gives you a lot of information about uh, the data access patterns. 
So let me go back to the other slide. Uh, so really the, the format for this is going to be if, if rule, then take action. The rule itself breaks down to any one of 14 metrics that we'll give you. This is stuff like CPU time, rows scanned, uh, even join count. We are looking at uh, you know, the ones that are leading to Cartesian products and nested loop joins. Um, and then the action is either hop, log, or bot. So, so pretty powerful if you, if you want to go all the way and really control what's happening. Okay, so that was about performance. Now I'm gonna talk a little bit more about uh, ease of use. Again, this is one of our founding things that we wanted to drive into the service right from the start. Uh, provisioning on an average takes, uh, I think at this point it's taking a couple of minutes, uh, two plus minutes. Uh, we have automatic patching, so when we release a new database, which is about once every two weeks, you automatically just get this applied to your cluster with no real action needed. Uh, loads are fairly simple. It's just a simple copy statement to load data. Uh, and then we have backup, security, and compression all built in. So they just come there. It does need enablement uh, from you. And so the goal now is we are trying to say, okay, we want minimum management of the cluster. We want minimal user intervention. And the things that we know you, you should do, we just want to do automatically. We don't want to... Uh, have to ask you to even enable it. So the two uh, examples here, uh, both of which will be will be released, is around uh, vacuuming and compression. I mean, vacuuming is a necessary operation. Uh, basically, what a vacuum does is it gets rid of deleted rows and it resorts your columns. Now you can say, why do you even need vacuum? But you get tremendous performance benefits from uh, sorting your columns when it comes to joints. Uh, so our goal is to sort of get vacuum to the point, something uh, the way garbage collection works. It's not really to get rid of vacuum and get rid of the performance benefits we get from having sorted columns. Um, so with this feature, we are essentially going to, you, you, we, I first talked about making vacuum far more performant. Now that we have that, we are now going to make this automatic. So it just happens in the background. We will detect when a cluster is idle and just run vacuum for you. Um, the second thing is around data compression. This is just a good thing. There is really no good reason to not have compressed data. I mean, there are a few column types that, um, that might be problematic, but for the vast majority of the data in your cluster, you benefit from having it be compressed, both in terms of performance as well as in terms of cost, because once you start compressing data, you can add a lot more data to your cluster. And so we are going to support automatic compression for tables that are created using uh, create table as semantics, as well as for uh, brand new tables. And this just, it, this just happens. And as you know, compression algorithms also evolve over time and better things come about. And as these evolve, we will automatically update it for you. So that's something that you don't have to actively go and uh, think about. And then here are a set of features that are more along the lines of, I mean, this is, from direct customer feedback. These have been what I would say paper cuts or little things that customers have struggled with a little bit as they try to move on, and we just want to have these features available to reduce friction in, in their uh, migration or use of uh, Redshift. The first one's around localization. So we, we now support uh, timestamp uh, time with time zone. This has been an important requirement. Uh, and we also support multi-byte characters, which is super important for 
pretty much uh, any customer for table names uh, for any customer outside the U.S. Uh, we've also added some controls for resource management. Again, this goes back to having an open environment. People now want to have some limits around how how much access or how much usage an individual user can have within an enterprise so that they can control costs. Um, and so we've announced, um, uh, we launched support for connection limits. So you can say a single user can only have so many active connections at a point in time. Uh, and then with query monitoring rules, that's another way for you to queue uh, queries from users because you can queue based on uh, uh, user group and uh, set rules for that group appropriately. Uh, the third feature is table level restore. This is a feature where essentially you can point to a Redshift uh, snapshot, uh, sna uh, sorry, uh, uh, backup, pick a particular table and just restore that, that single table. Uh, this is very handy when, say, you've accidentally deleted a single table. You don't have to go back and restore the entire cluster. You can just restore that particular table. Uh, with respect to ingestion, it's really more around uh, migration. Uh, as I mentioned, we launched uh, AWS DMS earlier this year. I think it was March this year. And, you know, it's been, um, we've, we've had a lot of adoption for that service. Uh, we already have support for, so there are two parts to it. There's a schema conversion tool, which basically just converts the schema uh, from source format to Redshift. In this case, we already support Oracle, Teradata, and Ateza Greenplum to Redshift, and we're going to support the other two uh, shortly. And then the database migration service, which actually moves your data along with uh, chain data capture. And again, you can uh, read the stuff that we support and the ones that are, uh, and more, you know, more engines will be added over time. So these really accelerate. I mean, this is a new service, and we are rounding out uh, some of the features there as well. But this, along with some help from professional services, has really accelerated migrations uh, for us. So, so early on, I mentioned about uh, mission-critical applications being run on Redshift. And what that essentially means is that availability becomes super crucial for us. I mean, durability, availability is kind of bread and butter for databases. It's nothing new. And uh, we've had a lot of features in this area. Um, but we are investing even more here. So what do we have? Let's just quickly go over what, what is the durability model for Redshift. Uh, so every time a piece of uh, data lands in the cluster, it gets three copies. There's a primary copy. Uh, we store a secondary copy within the same commit scope within the cluster, and then a third copy is asynchronously sent to uh, S3 as a backup. Uh, and, you know, once it gets to S3, it has the durability characteristics of S3. Uh, we also take uh, continuous, automatic, and incremental backups. Uh, so even you just have to set up a back backup retention window. So you can say, I want a backup for... You know, three days versus 20 days, whatever it is. And you can even take a snapshot, uh, snapshot of your backup and store it, uh, you know, for whatever period of time you want. Uh, and the backups can, in fact, be shipped across regions. So by just clicking a checkbox, we will automatically ship your backup data, not just to the local region, but to a secondary region of your choice. Um, and that helps with uh, uh, DR and use cases like that. Um, and the, the other feature here is around streaming restore. 
this is a pretty uh, cool feature we did. Uh, actually, it was available at launch. Essentially, what we do is when you spin up a cluster from backup, you can point to a backup and spin up a cluster. The creation of the cluster is just a couple of minutes. And we make the cluster available for querying as soon as the metadata gets loaded. As you can imagine, it's a really small part of the entire data set. So within uh, several minutes of actually initiating this operation, you actually have a cluster that can be queried. Now, granted, the performance is not going to be great because we are paging in blocks from S3. Um, so it, it, will, it will have that bias, but at least you have a cluster that's ready to go. And if you talk of availability, it's really about um, how we handle failures. Um, when it comes to disk failures, we just handle them. You know, if a disk fails, the data that was on that disk gets uh, distributed across the other disks that are there, and uh, we just keep going. You don't really notice it. Uh, when a node gets to a point where there are, you know, a certain number of disks have failed, uh, we will schedule a replacement for that node during a maintenance window, and that just gets taken care of automatically. Um, on node failures, so if a node fails, uh, we used, uh, we will, uh, you do, you do, uh, you do have an unavailability window with a cluster because we, we have to go and get a new node and add that to the cluster. And this is the area that we focused on uh, quite a bit this year because uh, we didn't want any availability impact uh, when a node fails. Uh, and then there are software failures, again, that roll into the solution that we built uh, this year. Uh, for availability zone failures, well, the backups are persisted in S3, and S3 is available across AZs. So if you have a backup and, say, the, the AZ in which your primary redshift cluster is fails, you can spin up a cluster on a different AZ using the same backup. And for region-level failures, if you had enabled cross-region backup, you can pretty much do the same thing. And this works. I mean, it's not a hot, hot type, active, active type situation because you do have to spin up a cluster. But at least you have the option, you have the backup available, and you can pick it up as of a you know, couple of minutes ago. So let me go a little bit in depth with uh, node fault tolerance and talk to you about uh, this feature that we've developed where um, essentially if a node fails, uh, your applications can go on you know, pretty much seamlessly as we replace the node in the back end. Uh, so the picture that you're seeing here is, you know, this is a redshift cluster with a Lino node, compute nodes. Uh, the orange thing there is a monitoring agent. This basically sits on every node of every cluster and reports on cluster health. So uh, let's look at the scenario where one of the nodes failed. So the top node here uh, has a failure. Uh, one of the things that we did was uh, build in a system where we are able to detect a failure, a hardware failure of a node uh, within uh, tens of seconds. Uh, the other thing that we've done is also reduce the time it takes to restart the database to within tens of seconds as well. Because for this feature to work end to end, every operation that goes with replacing a node just has to happen super fast. So in this case, the node fails. We detect that something's wrong. And then, uh, this is the interesting part of this feature, we actually go ahead and park the connections. Uh, we hold on to the SSL state, the network state, as well as the application state for all the connections that were active at the time of node failure so that they do not see, a, uh, see an interruption. So we hold on to the connection, 
and replace the node in the back end. Uh, once the node replace completes, uh, which is a couple of minutes, uh, the connections are, you know, they can, the queries can start flowing again. At this point, there is an impact in the sense that the queries that you had uh, going on at the time of the replace uh, do have to get resubmitted by the client, but uh, very, very soon we are going to uh, introduce a feature where we will submit the queries on your behalf. So it should feel fairly seamless for your um, end application. Um, at no point in this whole process is your database ever in an inconsistent state. You know, you always have a consistent copy. You might have to resubmit some queries, but your database is always in a consistent state. So apart from the agents that you see on the nodes themselves, we also have an overall agent that, that keeps track of every node in the retro fleet. So this comes in handy, for example, when the leader node fails. Now, granted, that's very rare given the ratio of leader nodes that we even have. Uh, every cluster only has a single leader node. Uh, but if a leader node fails, then our external agent is able to notice that and pretty much kick off the same uh, replace workflow. Okay, so that's about uh, availability. Now on to security. This is the last last segment. As I said, we've, we've focused on it right from the start, and most of these features here, I just want to give you a current state for security. Most of these have been available for years. Um, so security has three components. There's one about encryption, and uh, we support data encryption uh, at rest in the source, which is in S3. You can encrypt your data on S3. Uh, data is encrypted as it, as it makes its way into Redshift using TLS, and we support elliptical curve Diffie-Hellman for forward security. And then within Redshift, once it lands, we again encrypt your data at a block level. We actually do an envelope encryption scheme where every block of data is encrypted using a separate key. All these keys are encrypted using a cluster key, and then the cluster key is encrypted using a master key. And this is basically to allow you to rotate keys without re-encrypting your data. And also the master key can either be supplied by us using our key stores, or it can be supplied by an HSM of your choice. Uh, HSM is a hardware security model, in which case we would have to go to the HSM every time we wanted to access the database to get the keys to go access this data. Uh, we use uh, Amazon VPC for network isolation and uh, rely on uh, CloudTrail for uh, audit and uh, logging. So these would be the three pillars for having security, and as you can see, we are compliant with a number of standards, including uh, FedRAMP and HIPAA. But security is a, is, a, is a thing that keeps evolving. There are new things, there are new threats and new features, and we continue to invest in that. Uh, we've currently announced support for uh, IAM support for loads and uh, unloads. So basically, you used to have to provide a, a user ID password as part of the copy command. Uh, you don't have to do that anymore. Because essentially, under the covers, we've now associated a cluster with an IAM credential and profile. And so it's possible to now grant your cluster uh, permissions for your S3 buckets rather than so, uh, give a user ID in, as part of the command. Uh, so that's that's one feature. This is more this, this leads to better security as well as it's simpler for you to do that as part of the copy command and maintain all your permissions uh, through the IAM profile. Uh, the second thing is around enhanced VPC routing. This essentially ensures that all query traffic only goes through uh, the customer VPC. It never leaves your own private network. Uh, super critical for 
customers where, uh, where this becomes a compliance requirement. Okay. The other big feature that we're adding, and this has been a very popular ask uh, from our customer set, has been to add support for uh, IAM authentication for... Oh. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, for database user. Um, so this basically allows you to pretty much use a, an experience uh, compatible to single sign-on, uh, where a user is able to uh, sign in to their uh, enterprise directory, whatever directory it happens to be. Active Directory is one of the most popular things we've heard. Um, and we have our own native uh, custom drivers, and our custom drivers would then um, uh, get the Kerberos token or whatever ticket uh, that establishes the identity of that user and essentially goes to the IDP to get a SAML uh, assertion for that person. Uh, the drivers would then go off to IAM to get the appropriate IAM credentials uh, and then come to the Redshift cluster to get short-lived credentials uh, so that you can log in for you know, some duration and directly log into the Redshift cluster. Uh, so this is super useful because you don't have to manage a separate uh, user ID for the Redshift cluster, separate from all the IAM stuff that you have, and you just have a single point where your corporate directory can now just be used for uh, Redshift access as well. Okay, so that wraps up all the new features. Uh, this is just the last slide I have. Um, so, I mean, the, you know, these are, this is a summary of the things that we talked about. I think the critical thing I want to point out is, you know, we've been in service for about four years now. And one of the, you know, the, uh, one of the things that I'm most proud about uh, with what uh, my team's done is really the pace at which we've been able to innovate. Uh, we've introduced 140-plus features in the time that we've been, and we put out a new database every two weeks. It's, uh, it's not an easy thing to do. But it's super powerful because when we have that kind of pace of delivery, we're able to break down big, scary features into small things, and we're able to iterate uh, with our customers as well. So it's super powerful. And really, the roadmap is completely driven by uh, your requirements. These are from conversations we have with you, from your blog posts, angry tweets, and everything else out there. So thank you for that, and we continue to strongly encourage you to uh, uh, reach out to us to give us feedback. All right. Uh, I have about I have a couple of minutes left for questions, but uh, thank you. <laughs>